FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us today for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a lot really interesting subject. We're going to take a deep dive into American history uh, today. Um, and, and I, I want to start the show by making several statements uh, that I think will tee up our conversation. Number one, we're living through unprecedented times in America. Number two, the country has never been so divided. Number three, no president has ever been so polarizing or disliked. To many people, that's conventional wisdom, but our panel today is going to look at periods of American history to discuss whether or not we have lived through times much like we're in right now. And maybe more important than just talking about the past, how did the United States come through those times, recover so that we could move forward? And what does that offer us in terms of where we're headed today? I'm going to introduce that panel in just a minute, but we would be remiss if we didn't start with at least a couple minutes with a senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman, uh, to talk, Tamar, about uh, federal judge Steve C. Jones ruling yesterday that Georgia's fetal heartbeat law is unconstitutional. He'd already uh, issued a stay that kept the order from going into place as it was supposed to at the beginning of 2020, awaiting his ruling. And now yesterday he said this is an unconstitutional law, and he said it's a violation essentially of Roe v. Wade, the woman's right to uh, an abortion, uh, and, and said this, it is in the public interest and it is this court's duty to ensure constitutional rights are protected the constitutional liberty of the woman to have some freedom to terminate her pregnancy would be inhibited by this law, which would essentially, tomorrow outlaw abortion uh, almost completely in Georgia. So, tomorrow, uh, just briefly uh, before we move on, this is only the beginning of a long road, despite the fact that both sides are uh, obviously very involved right now in having, you know, uh, uh, diverse and uh, passionate feelings about it. Exactly. And you saw Democrats and pro-choice groups yesterday celebrate the ruling, but every single party involved, including you know, anti-abortion groups that, that were really pushing for this, this law, everyone knows that this is the first step of many. And the whole goal of this, um, of this bill when it was introduced was to take it all the way to the Supreme Court in order to, if not chip away at Roe versus Wade, to help topple it um, because of the current makeup of the Supreme Court, because of Donald Trump's two conservative picks that he uh, that he added to the court. So everyone knows that this is just one step on, on the way of what's going to be a very long battle. And, and we'll watch it. The uh, governor already uh, put out a tweet in which he said, Georgia is a state that values life and our fight to protect the innocent unborn is far from over. The attorney general's office has already said, to no one's surprise, they will appeal this ruling and it will make its way uh, forward in the courts. And of course, there are any number of states tomorrow that have uh, passed laws quite similar to Georgia's. And everybody's hoping that it's their case that will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to determine, they hope, whether Roe v. Wade is legal or not. 
Exactly. If you're against abortion, you know, you want your state's name, you want your group's name on that lawsuit. And just yesterday, um, shortly after or right around the time when the, the Georgia judge blocked this um, law, we saw in Tennessee, the governor signed similar legislation and another version of the heartbeat bill that was immediately stayed by a judge there. So it'll be interesting to see which case makes it there. It's also important to talk about the fact that the Supreme Court um, just ruled last month, or I guess earlier this month, um, they struck down a really restrictive Louisiana abortion law that that would have required abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at hospitals. Uh, That was kind of a surprise decision, given the the current 5-4 makeup of the Supreme Court in favor of conservatives. Um, So so there's a question of whether they're willing to take this up and and how they might rule. Um, So it's something that that might take a few years to wind wind its way up to the Supreme Court, but uh, certainly will be watched closely. Two other quick points before we move on. Number one, it's important to point out that in the Louisiana decision that the court did just hand down, the language of that ruling was such that it did not give anti uh, pro uh, the, the pro choice uh, forces a great deal of comfort that Judge Roberts, who was the swing vote in that, was necessarily on their side when it came to Roe v. Wade. That's still very much uh, in question for the pro uh, choice uh, people. But here's the other quick thing we'll point out. Judge Jones, in his ruling yesterday, also took into account the other aspect of this law that was passed by the Georgia legislature, which gave personhood to fetuses, saying uh, they would be counted in the census, they would be afforded all the rights of of, of individuals, um, and and he said that uh, essentially. It, his ruling will stop that from moving forward, at least for the time being as well. And, and there's question as to whether the Supreme Court even wants to get into that down the road. Yeah, I mean, the, the law as written, a court could order a, a father to, play, to pay child support on a fetus. Um, and, and yeah, they'd be considered in the census. Uh, families would get tax benefits, that sort of thing. So um, that'll be really interesting to see how that um you know, how that's considered by the court, if at all. And it really just puts even more pressure on the November elections. Um, you know, in the meantime, the, the state is paying money to have, um, you know, to defend this law in court, which I'm sure you're going to be hear Democrats talk about a lot. Um, and, and it puts even more pressure on who's going to be president, because, you know, as we mentioned one of the last times I was on the show, Bill, uh, the liberal wing of the court has two justices, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and and one more who are in the who are in their 80s and and who could be at risk of retiring soon. So uh, Democrats feel even more pressure right. to to win in November. All right. So we'll 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 continue to follow that story. And in fact, uh, later this week, um, among other people, uh, Fred Smith, uh, Emory University law professor, who has done this show in the past and who's just really terrific when it comes to talking about constitutional law, will be one of our panelists as we continue that conversation. But we do have a terrific show lined up today, and I want to get into that at this point with the panel that is joining us. First, let me welcome back uh, Professor Joe Crispino. Uh, Joe is the chair of the history department at Emory University. He is also, I always want to get this title pretty well right, Joe, the Jimmy (laughs) Carter Chair of American and Southern American History. Is that right? Do I have that pretty much on point? Well, we just say it, Jimmy Carter Chair of History, but yeah, you're right, Bill. Absolutely. Thanks. Great to be (laughs) here with you again, always. It's it's really great to have you. We're joined also by Professor Frederick Knight. Uh, Professor Knight, you are uh, uh, teaching 
um, um, particular with a particular orientation on the African diaspora. You, in fact, have a book on that subject that you've uh, written. How long have you been at Morehouse? I don't know that. Yeah, I've just finished up my ninth year at Morehouse. Started here in 2011. Before that, I taught at Colorado State University, and before that, University of Memphis, before coming here to Morehouse. Um, well, I do want to point out there's some great connections among the panelists. Uh, number one, uh, Joe and, and Fred both told me when I asked them to do the show that they'd heard each other about each other, never had a chance to meet, and were looking forward to having this conversation. So I'm glad, uh, Professor Knight and Professor Crispino, to bring you two together for the show. We should also say that our other panelists today is Doug Shipman. Uh, Doug Shipman is the former founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, now is the CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center. But, um, and Doug, you went to Emory, you know Joe Crispino, but you also have a, an interesting uh, Morehouse connection, I believe. You, when you studied at Emory, you developed your interest in civil rights, in religion, uh, and related subjects because you were inspired by one of the great men of Morehouse, Dr. Franklin, right? That's right. Yeah, thanks, Bill. I'm a longtime listener, first-time guest. It's great to be here, but that's true. <laughs> I, I took a course from, uh, from Dr. Robert Franklin. He had written a book about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X uh, and Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, and the course was actually on Malcolm and Martin and their theologies, which we may touch on a little bit today, the role of theology and, and religion in American life in these moments of crisis. And uh, that's, that's how I began my journey. One other quick note of introduction. Doug Shipman, you grew up in Arkansas. Joe Crispino, you are from Mississippi. By the way, your book, Atticus Finch, the biography, really helps us understand your deep connection to uh, the South. But So we've got two men of the South here. I don't know where you grow up, grew up, Fred. Grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. My family is from Alabama, though. My okay. mother and father were raised in Birmingham. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So, introductions made. Let me start, if I may, by reading a couple of uh, excerpts from writers who I think touch on what our discussion is going to focus on today. Um, David Blight, who is a professor of history at Yale, wrote a piece in March in the Atlantic magazine. Remember, this is before uh, George uh, uh, Floyd. This is before the racial unrest, the, the, the country's attempt to look at racial reconciliation. Nevertheless, much of what he says here is very pertinent to, our, pertinent to what we're going to talk about today. Blight wrote this. All across the country, Americans are responding to the shock of events and wondering how this public health crisis and economic collapse hit so suddenly. We are once again, as in 1861 and 1933, struggling in fear to understand whether our political institutions, our moral imagination, and our leadership are equipped to respond. In whom and in, and, and in what do we believe? Um, and then... David Brooks, the conservative columnist from the New York Times, who a lot of times people disagree with, I'm one of them sometimes, 
But, but he wrote this on 4th of July weekend. A lot of people look around at the conditions of this country, how black Americans are treated, how communities are collapsing, how Washington doesn't work, and none of it makes sense, none of it inspires faith, confidence, in none of it do they feel a part. If you don't breathe the spirit of the nation, if you don't have a fierce sense of belonging to each other, you're not going to sacrifice for the common good. We're confronted with a succession of wicked problems, and it turns out we're not even capable of putting on a frigging mask. All right. I think those set up our conversation pretty well. Uh, Joe Crispino, let me start with you. There are other periods of American history that are somewhat comparable to the sense of divisiveness, um, tribalism that we feel today, and it does strike me that... A clear starting point would be the years preceding, the middle of, and following the Civil War, correct? Sure, that's right, Bill. You know, historians were always uh, quick to point out that there uh, is rarely anything that is truly unprecedented. And we have lived through incredibly divisive times. And, And the Civil War period is one that we can take hope in, because that's a period when you know, over 650,000 Americans died because of the divisions that that tore the country apart. So we have been, you know, have we ever been this divided before? Yes, absolutely we have been. Um, and, and the nation survived that time. Have we ever been, um, had faced a crisis like this before? Yes, the Great Depression. You know, we faced a time in the Great Depression when, during the, during the course of the 1930s, the, the unemployment rate never got below 14 percent, which is, high, is as high as it's been uh, in, this, in recent months. So we have faced uh, enormous difficulties before, and I think in that sense, history can be um, a good guide and a, a kind of tempering uh, perspective for our current moment. Not to say that we're all, it's all going to work out and we're going to get through it just fine. That's not what we're saying. But it is, there is a, a, a place of hope in history to know that we have been through difficult, difficult times before, and we can learn from those times. Fred, and then Doug, why don't I let you each give me uh, uh, your thoughts on comparable periods or other periods, whether it's uh, uh, in a, you know uh, the, the same as what Joe pointed out or others where you feel the country has faced challenges quite a bit like ours, Fred, and then Doug. <clears throat> yes, my immediate response to the question of when has the country ever been so divided was the Civil War, of course, with the South seceding and with, you know, four years of military conflict, 600-some thousand people dying as a consequence of that war, and then a a whole um, different constitutional order emerging out of that with a 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment as a way to try to resolve the conflicts uh, that uh, gave rise to that that war. And so um, that's what ultimately comes to mind. And then beyond that, when we talk about a president being, no president ever being so disliked, um, I, I would also point to that era as well, thinking about Andrew Johnson, uh, mm-hmm. first president impeached. We also have to think about his impeachment and his ultimate conviction not, not going through because one single vote. And so when we talk about an unpopular president, um, he's about as unpopular as they get. The challenge, however, and I think this is where the distinction between our times and now is that there was a constitutional, stronger constitutional 
check in the form of a Congress that was strongly tilted towards checking the president. Um, we had a strong Republican Congress that was able, because they had a very strong majority in both houses, they could pass the Reconstruction Act 1867, get the 14th Amendment done, get the 15th Amendment done, get the, the, the Ku Klux Klan Act done. And so I think that's one of the distinctions between dealing with an unpopular president during the period of Reconstruction and dealing with a, un, a unpopular president during this historical moment. So, Bill, um, I, I certainly agree with the Civil War analogy. Um, obviously, I've spent a lot of time on uh, civil rights history, and there are a couple of interesting corollaries there. One is that, obviously, we have uh, social protests that are occurring, and in the, in the 60s, they were also multiracial. We remember them, of course, as Dr. King and, and Mrs. Lowry and, and Andrew Young, but they were a multiracial, multireligious coalition like we've seen now. And so one interesting thing that, um, that I hearken back to for a bit of hope, um, and even knowing some of those icons, they talked about justice and they talked about reconciliation. Reconciliation was always part of the destination. It was about civil rights laws, voting rights. It was about economic um, equality. But it was also about a sense of reconciliation. And I think in American history, even if you look at the Civil War period, you see moves um, that Lincoln was trying to lay out about reconciliation. I think America has a, has a sense of eventually getting to the reconciliation moment. I don't think we're there yet, but I do think we have a lot of different times in history to pull from when we get to that moment, which I think we ultimately will have to. We will have to politically get to a reconciliation moment. We will have to racially get to a reconciliation moment. And I think economically, which we may touch on, we may also have to get to a reconciliation moment, given how much inequality we have right now. I want to talk about why this time now feels different in the present. And I think one of the, the main things I think about is just how quickly information travels now. And just in terms of public engagement, I think the public is more aware of what's happening in Washington and with its government and, you know, just what's happening in different parts of the country way, way more so than they did back when, you know, in the 1800s where they just had a newspaper, uh, maybe days later. Um, you know, you can track on Twitter, you can track on cable news in real time what's happening with all these protests, all of these unrests. And I think because of that, people become more divided, people become hardened in their positions. And I think it makes it a little bit harder to come to that reconciliation that, that Doug was talking about. I want to pick up on what Tamar said, because I think one of the periods in American history that we don't oftentimes think about as an analogous period, is this period around the turn of the 20th century, 1890s and the 1900s. It was a time of, a, of great economic volatility. Think about the Panic of 1893, which was the largest economic downturn at that time, and also widespread economic inequality. The time of this historic immigration that was flooding the nation, which was a hugely divisive issue then and now. Time of great radicalism on the American left, socialist movements and the rest. Also, the rise of lynching in the South and, and turns to the semi-regular urban race riots, like here in Atlanta in 1906. This was a period in which the nation and the larger Western world were dealing with the immense economic, social, political, 
and cultural disrupt disruptions that were brought about by the Industrial Revolution. And Bill, what we're going through now, I believe, is di the digital revolution, which is every bit as disorienting and disruptive in our lives. You know, we have these supercomputers in our pockets that are transforming, as Tamar said, the way we get information, the way we think about facts, and facts become disputed. And we're going to be dealing with this long after the November election. This is a decades-long process that we're going to have to work through as a society uh, to, to develop laws, policies, uh, you know, ways of dealing with, with the kinds of disruptions that we have that are brought about by technology. Okay, I would like th – I, 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 thank you, all of you, uh, for those kind of opening uh, remarks about this. I, I want to go back to the Civil War for a minute. There are, as we've already said, other periods that we'll talk about as well. But um, I, I think it's worth noting that one of the, the binding factors, and Fred, you essentially talked about it when you talked about the power that Congress used to have when it dealt with uh, uh, presidents who the country was not, uh, who were not necessarily the best for doing the best for the country at given periods of time. Um, Abraham Lincoln, uh, in, in, it went back in 1854, said this, the legitimate object of government is to do for the community of people whatever they need to have done, but cannot do it all or cannot do so well for themselves in their separate and individual capacities. And Lincoln said that uh, well before he obviously made his run for and became president of the United States. It's a, it's a quote that FDR picked up on when he decided he needed to establish uh, the New Deal. And Fred, I, I mentioned that for two reasons. One, because it was a vision of how government could work for the betterment of all people, all people. Uh, but two, that the hope that many people felt in the aftermath of the Civil War, Reconstruction was dashed entirely when, when the Jim Crow South reestablished the white supremacy of its time and where that government action, that federal government action, failed to be acting in the best interest of the people. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, and I think the ultimate irony that one of the biggest political achievements of the of Reconstruction government was the establishment of public education in throughout the South. I think that's in terms of the local governments, the state governments, state constitutions and conventions that were set up. One of the things that was really central to their agendas was establishing public education for people in the South, regardless of what station you were born in, for the first time in the South's history. And then here we have two generations later, the, the African-American political base in partnership with liberal whites in the South, those African-Americans were pushed out of that system. And we're dealing with the long-term consequences of that, of seeing the government as playing a role in the betterment of people's lives. And also, I want to fast forward a bit to, uh, you know, at what point did the United States start to step back from the, the promise of uh, the New Deal? And, and really, you have to point to the 1970s and 1980s. We have to ask our question, why was that? And ultimately, uh, much of that had to do with the question of race. And, and, you know, to what extent are we going to extend the New Deal promise to the African-American population, more broadly speaking? And... Um, 
And, and so and ultimately the idea of a common go good that ship has really been broken on the shoals of race in many cases in American history. So, Doug, that statement by Lincoln in 1854 seems to have resonance today. People are looking in the midst of this pandemic, the economic dislocation, racial unrest. They're looking for leadership. They, it, they do. Uh, it, all of the polling suggests that people do need government to act on our behalf uh, to heal at least the coronavirus and, and to begin the process of whatever kind of racial reconciliation we're going to have. I do find that fascinating that that 1854 quote matters today. Well, let me pick. I think it does matter today. And I think Fred is spot on to talk about policy changes and the and the actual mechanics of policy and how they have impacts on these great disruptions. One other point, though, that Lincoln was a master of, and that was understanding that that leaders also have to frame why governments are doing what they're doing, not just what they're doing. You know, at Gettysburg, that great address, he begins by saying, you know, the, the quote at the, at the very top of the speech, it's, of course, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon the continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, why did he use the Declaration of Independence? Well, because the Constitution had slavery embedded in it. The Constitution had uh, exclusion for African-Americans embedded in it. It was not useful to what he was trying to accomplish, which was moving the country to somewhere else. He had to go back to the Declaration of Independence. And so I think the other thing that, that, we, uh, that we need is we need a grounding of our government leaders to say, here are the policies, but here are the reasons why those are legitimate moves. And they need to tie into, you know, when we've seen them in American history, they usually tie into what I call a civic myth, some sort of overriding civic vision that is not yet real, but that is an aspiration that can rally people around. It doesn't always work, but I think it's almost always required. Yeah, I think that uh, just picking up on what Doug said, you know, you think about the leadership of Lincoln in the in the in the Civil War, the leadership of Roosevelt during the Depression, and it, you always wonder about does the man make the times or did the times make the man? And I, and I think it's always, you know, Lincoln himself admitted. Right, that that he lived in extraordinary times and had to deal with extraordinary problems, but he dealt with them with extraordinary empathy. And I think, uh, Bill, that this is the quality in our political leadership today that is so profoundly lacking: is any kind of sense of empathy from our leadership. Um, and and one of the things that is unprecedented about our times, because I talked about how, you know, rarely is anything unprecedented, but there are things that are unprecedented. Never has a president ha had so vast a power of communication as Donald Trump has with his Twitter feed to instantly reach millions of people around the world in a completely uh, direct, unfiltered way. And never have we had a president so willing to use his those powers of communication in such a reckless, haphazard, and divisive way. Um, so, so this this is unprecedented. Um, um, the the absolute lack of interest in the presidency to appeal to any voters beyond his base. 
Um, and this is what is so disturbing to me about the time that we're living in, is, is the absolute lack of empathy and leadership from the highest office in the land. Doug talked a little bit about um, political leaders and having some sort of civic duty. And I think the problem is that over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a, a real shift in our, our incentive system politically that makes it really hard for leaders to be elective to you know, to want to compromise, to want to work for the greater good. Um, they're, they're forced to fundraise constantly. And so they're, they're, they don't have time to work in committees to hash out legislative, you know, um, you know, legislative compromises. They, they constantly are worried about primary challenges, uh, people who appeal directly to their bases. They, they're constantly getting this feedback loop on social media, um, you know, people either praising them or hating them. And it makes it really hard to um, want to say, you know what, I'm going to work toward the middle. Um, if you're getting these constant messages that you have to appeal to your base all the time or else you're going to be vulnerable to losing reelection. And let me just, Tamar raises a great point and, and one very uh, local example of, of that the rules matter. When the Primus King case, which allowed African-Americans to vote in the Democratic primary in Georgia, was decided in 1946, it immediately brought a lot of African-Americans into the political process and made the mayor of Atlanta be able to be elected with a coalition of African-American voters and liberal whites. And what did it produce? It produced the Hartsfield administrations, and then it produced the Ivan Allen Jr. administrations. And those were very different than those in the past. And so I think that this tomorrow raises a very important point, which is who is able to vote and, and what the political system's rules are and those incentives, as she said, do drive changes in policies. All right. I've got to get to a break. Uh, but I want to read one quick uh, quote, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Um, and, and I'm going to raise it as a question. Who said this? As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? Donald Trump? Well, let's take a break and come back and we'll talk about it. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. So the, uh, oh, first of all, let me reintroduce everybody. Frederick Knight, professor of history at Morehouse uh, College. Joe Crispino, professor of history at Emory University. Doug Shipman, former and founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and now the CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center. Doug, at some point, we really need to talk about what this pandemic has done to the arts world here in Georgia. And we'll do that on another show down the road. I'd love to have you talk about that with us, given that you now run the uh, state's premier arts institution, and Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution 
is with us as well. All right, the quote again. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this uh, did, did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy, Korea, Valley Forge for this? It could be Trump-like, but uh, Doug Shipman, Richard Nixon, 1968, his acceptance speech when he was uh, the Republican nominee for President of the United States, Doug. 1968 is a corollary many have brought up for, for these times, obviously with um, the assassinations of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, the incredible Democratic convention that year in Chicago, Nixon coming back from a political, uh, you know, seemingly a political Siberia to come back to the presidency, and just this fundamental question of where are we headed as a country? What are the, our most important priorities and for whom? And I think that, um, you know, that quote, Nixon was laying out uh, some of his fears. And I think this time we're living in is also driven by fear. It's, it's very much driven by a fear and anguish. Fred, I'm uh, older than everybody on this panel today. I was already by 1968 in college, so I know full well what an incredibly tumultuous period of American history that was. The assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, uh, rioting in our uh, streets, the war in Vietnam continuing on, uh, despite the fact that increasingly Americans were against it, the demonstrations in the street against the war. Uh, it would be hard not to include 1968 and the years surrounding it as another time of crisis for this country, not dissimilar to what we're experiencing today, Fred. Uh, there's no question about that. And I know a lot of people have made that try to create that analogy between 1968 and the present. I suppose there are some differences between 1968 and the present. You know, we are dealing with an incumbent president as opposed to 1968. Uh, and so that's one important distinction to make. So as you move into to the, the November election of 2020, the past four years, the particular last year, really is on the, uh, it, it rests in the, on the incumbent seat. And so that's an important distinction to make. I, I think that also um, the fact that you had, you know, 20 million, you know, people supporting the Black Lives Matter movement across racial lines, it, 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 there's something of a distinction there. And then the degree of, of urban unrest that I think was much more, can be considered more revulsive to the American psyche was much greater in 1968 than the present. There was much more property damage in 1968 than the present. Um, I think that, that will create, that creates a, a, a much stronger rev, a, a revulsion to and aversion to those movements. Um, you had Vietnam War. I think there was a, a different constellation of forces in 1968 than in the present. Uh, um, and so I understand that people want to draw that, uh, uh, create that analogy, but I don't necessarily buy that. Uh, buy that. That's my opinion. Just following up on what Fred is saying, uh, there are similarities and differences. I mean, one of one of the uh, stark differences is the role that the draft played in 1968 as a source of division, that you had a very, very controversial war, and you were a young man who could be drafted and forced to serve in that war, whether you wanted to or not. 
And if you didn't, if you didn't want to serve, you're going to go to jail if you didn't do it. I mean, that, that created, and 50, 50 uh, American soldiers were dying each day in Vietnam in 1968. So that created enormous divisions and I think drove the, those historic protests you saw against the Vietnam War by 1970 and the early 1970s. Uh, but I agree with Fred as well that, that, the, that the racial dynamics of our current Black Lives Matter uh, movement are, are somewhat different from that, that you do see a broader, you, you see a lot of white folks out at these protests and you see a broader kind of consensus around uh, the need for, for change. You also see, I think, a more hopeful situation in American urban life today than you did. In 1968, this was the, this was the heart of kind of white flight where you had white middle-class Americans who were moving out to the suburbs, abandoning the, you know, the inner city, whereas you see it like a city in Atlanta today, where there are more hopeful scenes of, of, of urban development, of, of people living, you know, not abandoning the city. So that's, that's an encouraging aspect, I think, of our current moment um, that I think that, that, that suggests that we can survive uh, and, and create a kind of urban uh, interracial living environment that's different from what we saw develop in the late 60s and 70s. So, so I want to come back to that in a minute, but, but Tamar, um, so here, here, you know, it's interesting to hear uh, Fred and Joe talk about 68 and the differences uh, with now. I would say the one similarity is a, in those day, in that point, a presidential candidate more than willing to exploit racial uh, fears uh, to win the White House. That's certainly, we've seen that in, uh, in 2020 uh, in the Trump campaign. Um, but I also think Joe made an important point about the draft. I, I hadn't thought much about Vietnam until I watched the great Spike Lee, a Morehouse man, of course, Fred, uh, his newest movie, The Five Bloods, which is another brilliant Spike Lee movie that, that informs us about American history in such a deeply compelling and emotional way. And what that movie reminds me of is exactly what Joe talked about. The draft took thousands and thousands of black men and sent them off to fight that war. And so the racial divide uh, was exacerbated uh, for that whole generation of young African-American men. So, I mean, I get that there are a lot of differences but there are some things, there were seeds planted in those days that we're living with today, Tamar. Sure. And, and now think about what we have today, drawing attention to the experiences of black men. We have police body cams and we have people streaming encounters on social media of black men being pulled over by police officers to really bring that to the forefront of the public's consciousness. You know, you talk to African-Americans and they say, yeah, none of this is new. This has been happening for decades. This has been happening for centuries. Um, but, but now I feel like it's really um, come to the forefront of at least the white consciousness because we're seeing it, you know, in real time on social media. You're seeing the raw emotion of a moment like that. And I think that's what has helped galvanize a lot of these movements that you're seeing in the streets. I want to throw something out to all of you. And, uh, well, Joe, why did you start us on this? Um, another comparison or contrast with 1968 my recollection of 1968 is that it was mostly white people who were on, in the streets protesting the war in Vietnam. I do not recall. It, it wasn't. And Dr. King himself uh, resisted for a long time on the advice of his uh, leadership team uh, 
making a statement opposing the war in Vietnam because the civil rights leaders felt that wasn't their battle. When Dr. King finally did come out and oppose the war, uh, it was a victory for the anti-war forces, but he was excoriated by many people uh, for that. I think the Vietnam protests were largely white. Uh, the, the protests against racial inequality, which did turn into terrible rioting in 68, were, of course, taking place in black inner city America. So in some ways, Joe, it does feel to me like there is this hopefulness today that we see people in the streets protesting of all colors for the first time in my recollection, Joe. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think that that is a difference that, um, that is worth, that, that does give one hope that, um, it's encouraging to see, uh, the numbers of statements put out by groups and institutions condemning racism. I mean, the, the toppling of, of the of statues and that, and some of this is controversial right i think it should happen through democratic ways and in orderly ways but the taking down of the statue in my hometown of decatur georgia is a remarkably important to me you say it's just symbolic well symbols matter symbols matter and it gets back to points that doug and and fred were making earlier about uh, about all of the, the 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 southern reaction during Reconstruction, that we've never dealt with that history. We never dealt with the way in which the southern nationalist view of the war and Reconstruction has been on our landscape and par- a part of our our world in ways that we have for too long we have not dealt with. So so the, all of these reactions to our current racial moments have been encouraging and i do and i will just say one more thing that i that i found encouraging it's encouraging to see bill how feeble you talked about uh richard nixon invoking law and order in 1968 to great political effect and of course he had someone on his far right george wallace who was using that issue even more uh even more dramatically but I think it's been encouraging to see how feeble the law and order reactionary impulse has been in the wake of the protests. Ironically, this has been one way that the great disuniter, Donald Trump, has united a significant majority of Americans. His callous, inept response to Charlottesville and to racial conflict has, I think, created enormous consensus around the issue. Yeah, if we look at when we look at opinion polls in the United States, some 67 percent believe that Trump has not done a good job of dealing with questions related to racial equality. I mean, that's a big opinion gap. Uh, um, And so that's that's something to to bear in mind as we look forward into uh, November of 2020, which is supposed what this conversation is trying to get us to think about, um, because there is so much at stake. for that election, for the for the uh, future of the country, and so um, I I um, I would say that um, going back to your original question about using racial fears and trying to inflame you know, racial anxieties, uh, the person that comes to mind is actually George H. W. Bush and his Willie Horton ad and the way that he used this advertisement, political advertisement about. Uh, Michael Dukakis releasing this uh, um, black person, giving him clemency, and then that person going out and committing a murder is kind of, is, uh, speaking to a political base. That's, it's that kind of, of political posturing that I see 
as and as analogous to our times as as Nixon. Um, I've got to get to another break. Uh, but when I come back, I want to uh, I want to talk about where we think we've we've had we've talked about it a bit here and there. But um, we we've pointed to the depression. Uh, we've pointed to the Civil War. We've pointed to 1968. Uh, as examples of other times in which the country has been so divided, and we've come through it. So in the final segment, I want to ask each of you to give me some of your thoughts on, on, on why you think we have the potential to come through this a better country than we feel like we're living in right now. Or if you're you know, pessimistic about that, please feel free to share that as well. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Tamar Hallerman, Doug Shipman, Joe Crispino of Emory University, Fred Knight of Morehouse College uh, with me today. I want to very quickly tell you we're looking at a huge, huge breaking news story uh, that we'll certainly be talking about later this week as it develops. The Trump administration is eliminating the CDC as the first recipient of coronavirus data. They are putting that in the hands of of private, they want private a private contracting team to be the ones who receive coronavirus information and accumulate it, taking power away from what has been CDC's traditional role for decades now. That's a huge, huge story with many implications, and we'll certainly talk about it later in the week. Okay, Doug Shipman, I want to start with you because you mentioned uh, when we first started talking. Um, about, uh, you mentioned that perhaps we'll talk about the role of religion in all this. And I know that, again, the study of religion has been an important part of your life's work. To what extent do you believe that religious institutions can serve a role in bringing us together? And can you point to experiences in the past when that has happened? So I think religious institutions and religion, no matter its tradition, really tries to think about um, greater moral purpose uh, and ways in which we are connected to one another's humanity, either through the, uh, an image of you know, the divine, so people created in the image of God kind of uh, religiosity, or that you know, I express my religious faith through my works, through the way that I treat other people you know, in, in this time. And so I think that re- I think that religious institutions can be helpful because they can give us that greater moral purpose. And I think going forward, the, the, the magic, if you go back to King just for a second, I have a dream speech. I think he did three things there that we need to find again. One is a moral, a deep moral purpose, that there are things that are wrong that must be corrected in society. Two, he basically said that um, we have to uh, uh, fulfill the promises of the original promises made in America. So I think you have to have grounded in America. And then three, he, he continually prioritized children. He wanted his children to be um, judged by the content of their character. He wanted the children of slaves and the children of slave holders to, to sit together at the table of brotherhood. So I think that I think that religions are often very good at helping us understand why we should sacrifice for someone else. And I think back to Joe's point about empathy, that's very important right now moving forward. Fred, do you want to weigh in on, on, uh, you don't have to pick religion if you want, but do you see hope for how we're going to be uh, bringing each other to get coming back together? Yeah, I'd like to build on uh, what Doug shared about King, and I'd like to point to one of Dr. King's mentors, and that's Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman is Morehouse alumnus. He would be, uh, uh, he would teach at Boston University when King was a 
when King was a uh, graduate student there. And, and Howard Thurman, in 1968, in response to the divisions, the social divisions in 1968, would write a book called The Search for Common Ground. And, and what he did was, in that book, wrestle with the whole question of black power, which seemed to be a very divisive, very uh, contentious issue. And what he ultimately asked his audience to do is to do exactly that, is a search for common ground. What are those places that we could come together you know, how can we both honor individual identity, but at the same time find those places? Ultimately, uh, Howard Thurman would find some of his inspiration through uh, nature, through understanding of nature, a mystical understanding of nature. And, and so I think that there's, there's a message in that, uh, and that is uh, uh, so our moral and philosophical exemplars can provide us with a window of certain lands and, and give us a call to do exactly that and that is search for some kind of common ground. Bill, Joe, I'm I want so you glad. to take a minute too. Fred, I, I'm so glad you brought up Howard Thurman. I have his book right by my computer and um, Jesus and the Disinherited, <laughs> which of course was so profoundly important in influencing Martin Luther King and other uh, leaders of the civil rights movement. One of the things that gives me hope uh, in our current moment is that I think with all the division, with all the discord and rancor, we all are reminded now that elections matter, that elections matter and that elections uh, can change uh, the tone and the temper. Uh, and we have an extraordinarily important one coming up in November. And I think um, it's, it's wonderful to be able to take, to, to take the temperature of the country and uh, come together and, and weigh our future together in this uh, election in November. Tomorrow we're about to run out of time, but your job is as a reporter, so you're you're got to be cautious about being too much of an opinion giver on a show like this. But as you go out and talk to people in the community for the stories you're reporting, um, do you feel that people do you sense a feeling of hopefulness among people, or are people still feeling the depths of d despair about where we're living today? I think it's a little bit of both, right? I think there's still a lot of reacting to the terrible things we've seen in Minneapolis, at the Wendy's here in Southwest Atlanta. Um, but I think you also talk to a lot of young people who see a lot of hope. So, um, you know, it's a long time between now and the November elections and young people, it's traditionally hard to get them to the polls. So we'll see if they learn this lesson. We are out of time. Tamar Hallerman, Doug Shipman, Joe Crispino, Fred and I thank you for a just a really fascinating conversation. I want to close the show with another quote from the David Blight piece that we've read from earlier uh, in The Atlantic. Here's what he says. He says, wars worth fighting have to be won. Nazis and terrorists can unify us. So might hunger, joblessness, hopelessness, or a scourge like slavery, or defending the right to vote, or a virus. We have moral habits that will sustain us through these crises, including humanity, compassion, and a sense of how the many are much greater than the one. I love that, and it does tell us there may be a way through all of this today. Thanks, everybody, for this conversation. I'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, take care. Please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.